I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is episode 24, Critical Mass. Last episode, we delved into some of the socio-political developments that took place from the 9th to the 11th century in northern Iberia. We discussed the dynamics of the county nobility, along with exploring the roots of the soon-to-be very relevant class of lower nobles, known collectively as the Infansoings, or in the singular, Infante. This episode, we will resume the main narrative, following the death of Almansud and delve into the reigns of his sons, as well as the reigns of Alfonso V and Vermudo II. These reigns will serve as a convenient marker for us, because as they came to an end, a new stage of Iberian history began. And now, let's get started. When we last visited Iberia, we paused in the year 1002 with the death of Almansur, his Leonese contemporary, Vermudu II, died just a few years earlier, between August and October of 999. Alfonso V was born in 994, and he was Vermudu's son from his second marriage to Elvira, the daughter of Count Garcia Fernandez of Castile. Since he was about four years old when his father died, it fell to his mother Elvira to take over royal affairs as regent. Alfonso's military training had been delegated by Vermudu II to the most powerful noble of the Galician aristocracy, Count Mendu Gonçalves of Porto, who was his Alfrez, or as it's referred to in Latin, Armiger Regis, which seems to be the title used for the commander of the royal bodyguard. The details are spotty, but it seems like there may have been a coup led by Mendu Gonçalves in 1003 against Queen Elvira and her allies, leading to his takeover as regent. This whole affair didn't sit right with Elvira's brother, Count Sancho Garces of Castile. So the next year, in 1004, Sancho challenged the legality of this takeover by appealing to the highest legal authority in the peninsula, Al-Mansur's son and successor, Al-Muzaffa. Now this may seem surprising at first, but at the time of Al-Muzaffa's ascension, treaties had been signed by both Leon and Castile, 
that acknowledge them as client states or vassals of the Caliphate of Cordoba. Since this case was related to Visigothic law rather than Islamic law, Al-Muzaffa entrusted the case to the judge of the Christians in Cordoba, a man by the name of Asbar bin Abdullah bin Nabil, who ruled in favor of Count Mendugonsalves. But it seems like there were continued appeals that led to a compromise that allowed Elvita back into the royal court in 1007. About a year later, in October of 1008, Count Mendugonsalves died in unknown circumstances. And whether Castile was involved or not in his death is pure speculation at this point. But before we get too far ahead, let's go back to the year 1002 in Al-Andalus and catch up on what's going on there. The sudden death of Al-Mansur saw a transition of power go not to the legitimate caliph, but to Al-Mansur's oldest son, Abd al-Malik, who stepped seamlessly into his role and pretty much stuck to the formula that had worked so well for his father, which of course meant vigorously pursuing a policy of near-constant holy war. So, in 1003, he sent out a punitive campaign against the Catalonians, since they had been conducting raids on the Upper March. And it's illustrative as to who was boss around there, because both Count Sancho Garces of Castile and the regent Queen Elvira of Leon were required to send troops to Medina Sally to join the Umayyad army, which they did. This combined army went on to defeat the Catalans in a battle at Albesa. 5,500 prisoners were transported back to Cordoba for ransom or enslavement. But despite this victory, it's said that Abd al-Malik was criticized that he didn't capture enough prisoners of war. And in 1004, he confronted a plot to assassinate him and replace him with his infant son, Muhammad. While this conspiracy was foiled, it necessitated the empowerment of one of al-Mansur's generals, who in turn had to be removed from his position when suspicion arose that he participated in the planning of another coup to install a new caliph things are starting to get a little messy. There were subsequent military operations launched against the Northern Kingdoms, starting with an attack on Zamora in 1005, followed by campaigns against Ribagorza in 1006 and Castile in 1007. After returning from the Castile campaign in 1007, Abd al-Malik received honor and recognition from the Caliph who was still poor old Hisham II, and he was bestowed with the title of Al-Muzaffa, meaning the triumphant. However, his health started to deteriorate in 1008 for reasons that remain unknown. While he was on campaign against Castile that same year, he had to abandon it due to unfavorable weather conditions. On his journey back to Cordoba, Abd al-Malik died approximately a day's march away from the city on October 20th. He was 33 years old and had ruled Al-Andalus for about six years. And though it seems like he died of natural causes, there were rumors circulating that he had been poisoned by none other than his half-brother, Abdallahman. Now, if you'll recall, at one point, Al-Mansud had married a daughter of the royal family of Navarre, Abdallahman 
was the product of that marriage. Therefore, he was also known as Sanchuelo, meaning Little Sancho. Immediately upon taking his brother's place, it became very apparent that Sanchuelo harbored ambitions even grander than that of his father's, aiming to become caliph himself. He convinced Hisham II to declare him as his heir, bestowing upon Sanchuelo the title of Al-Nasid al-Dawla, or Defender of the Dynasty. However, Sanchuelo underestimated the resentment and backlash this move would generate. Public opinion in the city turned against both Sanchuelo and the unfortunate caliph. And rumors circulated that there was an inappropriate relationship between them. Meanwhile, members of the Umayyad dynasty who should have been the rightful heirs were not willing to roll over to an upstart. Some of whom sought military support and gained the backing from disaffected factions in the army, the administration, and the citizens of Córdoba. But it seems like Sanchuelo was either unaware of these events or was unconcerned by them, because he was wholly focused on his first mission, which was to attack the Kingdom of León. Apparently, a northern count named by the Arabic sources as Ibn Gómez asked for his help in removing the young Alfonso V from power, Sanchuelo rushed into this campaign in January of 1009, even though, reportedly, the weather conditions were terrible. Meanwhile, a group of Cordoban nobles led by Mohammed ibn Hisham, the grandson of Abdalrahman III and supported by the mother of Abdal Malik, who believed the rumors that her son had been poisoned by his half-brother, seized the caliph's residence of the Alcazar of Cordoba, after a brief negotiation, Hisham II gave up his position as caliph in favor of his relative, Muhammad II, who took the name Al-Mahd. This event also led to the people of Córdoba looting and destroying the palace city of Medinet al-Zahariya. Without getting into details, it's reported that the women of the harem suffered horrendous fates at the hands of the new caliph. This behavior was widely criticized by the public as it was seen as a disgraceful treatment even to a condemned traitor's family. By this point, Sanchuelo had reached the border region. However, when he started his return to quell the rebellion in Córdoba, his army, which primarily consisted of Berber and Sakaliba troops, fell apart commanders abandoned their units to secure their local positions, and some accused Sanchuelo of failing to anticipate the backlash his actions caused. And I would have to agree with said commanders. As I've mentioned previously, the Umayyad family was literally the only Muslim family in the Iberian Peninsula who could claim a legitimate right to rule. They were ostensibly at least distant relatives of the Prophet, Sanchuelo's move to insert himself into the Umayyad dynastic succession and tear down the facade that Al-Mansud created was just unbelievably stupid and out of touch. Yes, the caliph was a puppet, but he was a legitimate puppet. As he neared Cordoba, he found himself with only a few loyal followers, 
So he sought refuge in a Christian monastery, not far from where his brother Abdul Malik had passed away five months earlier. He was captured by soldiers dispatched by the new caliph and unceremoniously killed. His unclothed body underwent a ritualistic humiliation and he was subsequently crucified to one of the city gates. Thus ended the line of Al-Mansud. Things were already going badly for the Caliphate of Cordoba, but I think we can safely say that this moment marks the beginning of its complete disintegration. There had already been a growing resentment in Cordoba towards the increasing number of Berbers brought in by Al-Mansur and his sons from North Africa to bolster support for their less-than-legitimate rule. Some of this resentment was due to ethnic tensions, similar to those in Al-Andalus in the 8th century. The Berbers who had accompanied Sansuelo during his campaign left him because they feared returning to Cordoba, where they knew the population was hostile towards them. And they were pretty positive that Sansuelo could no longer protect them. So they threw their support behind another member of the Umayyad family, Suleiman, whom they proclaimed as the new caliph, while also searching for new allies. Their first choice was the Sakaliba general and governor of the Middle March, Wadih. However, he rejected their appeal. So the Berbers began to look around and turned to a rather surprising potential ally, the Count of Castile. They managed to gain his support by giving up a series of strongholds on the Dodo frontier. In fact, Count Sancho was courted by both claimants to the caliphate before making his decision. So, the former supporters of Al-Mansur's sons were now divided, with those close to Abd al-Malik backing the caliph al-Mahd, while those who had been loyal to Sansuelo supporting Suleiman. The Berbers and their shiny new allies marched on Cordoba, where Wadih had retreated to after failing to stop them. In November of 1009, they ousted Mohammed al-Mahd, who sought refuge in Toledo with Wadih. Thereupon, Suleiman became the new caliph, and his first order of business was to bury the body of Sanchuelo since he had been popular with the Berbers. Wadih and al-Mahd began searching for allies to help them mount a counterattack. They managed to secure the support of Samsa Kaliba and the Count of Barcelona, who was joined by his brother, the Count of Urgel, along with several Catalan bishops. They joined forces at Toledo and marched on Córdoba, defeating the Berbers in the battle on May 31st, 1010. So, you can already see here the beginnings of an interesting dynamic that will become more prevalent as the years go by. And that is Christian and Muslim powers allying with each other against other Christian and Muslim alliances, all trying to get an edge over each other. Religious affiliations be damned. Power was the endgame. The Berbers who had set up shop in Medinat al-Zahara to avoid clashes with the Cordobans saw which way the wind was blowing and decided to retreat to Al-Hadikas. The Cordobans and Al-Mahad supporters wasted no time in looting the palace city once the Berbers left. According to Ibn Idhadi, after the victory, 
al-Mahd vowed to exterminate the Berbers and pursue the retreating army with a force he claims was composed of 30,000 Muslims and 10,000 Christians. But regardless of however big this army was, al-Mahd was decisively defeated in a battle near Marbella on June 21st. The bishops of Girona, Vic, and possibly Barcelona were also killed in the battle. Al-Mahd and his allies retreated to Córdoba, whereupon the Catalans decided to abandon the doomed caliph and fled back home, leaving Wadih to face a siege by the furious Berbers. Wadih, being the kind of guy who looks out for number one first and foremost, carried out a coup. Al-Mahd was seized and accused of causing division among the Muslims and promptly beheaded. His head was sent to the Berbers as a good faith gesture to initiate peace talks. And poor old Hisham II was reappointed as caliph, while Wadih maintained his position as power behind the power, of course. However, the Berbers didn't really care about grand proclamations made inside a city that they were besieging. As the situation inside deteriorated, Wadih attempted to flee but was captured and executed by his own allies in November of 1011. The siege of Córdoba continued until 1013, resulting in the destruction of most of the city. The garrison attempted one last attack on the besiegers, but that failed spectacularly. The only move left was to negotiate a surrender, which they did. And the terms were a general amnesty for the defenders along with a huge cash payment made to the Berbers. But no such amnesty was honored. The Berbers, who were no doubt still angry over the countless insults and degradations heaped upon them by the Cordobans, unleashed a widespread massacre of the population of the city. Countless officials and scholars were killed. Some civilians got lucky and managed to flee the city, but it's reported that what was left of Cordoba was put to the torch. Hisham II was made to apologize for his role in the conflict and surrendered the throne once again. It's not entirely certain what happened to him, but one source claims that he was strangled by Suleiman's son, Muhammad. In 1013, Suleiman al-Mutasin was restored to power in Cordoba. Ibn Idhari puts it this way, quote, The rule of the Berbers began in Cordoba, and that of the Umayyads ended. After it had existed for 268 years and 43 days. Unquote. Back in the Kingdom of Leon, in that same year of 1013, Alfonso V, who now ruled in his own right, royally ticked off Count Sancho of Castile by marrying Elvira, the daughter of his old rival, Count Mendo Gonçalves. Now, we don't know whether this marriage was the cause or effect of the falling out between Alfonso and Sancho. What we do know is that in 1014, Count Sancho was part of a failed noble revolt against the king, and the two remained enemies until Sancho's death in 1017. The reign of Alfonso V saw the rebuilding of the city of Leon, and a notable aspect of this process was the concession 
of fueros to local communities. A fuero was basically a royal grant to a specific locality that granted legal incorporation. It could also confirm local customs or privileges, and might have also included rights to taxation or self-government. For the next few centuries, it was used to great effect by the crown as a method to make border towns more attractive to northern settlers as it pushed further south. In 1022, Queen Elvira died. So the king used this opportunity to enter into a union with Uraca, the sister of King Sancho Garces III of Navarre. At this point, Castile was very much dominated by pro-Navarese aristocratic factions. So this move aimed to bring these eastern factions closer to the crown. Alfonso also seized upon the collapse of Umayyad rule by recovering much of the old lands taken by Al-Mansur and pushing the Galician frontier further south. While besieging the fortress of Viseu in 1028, which was still under Muslim rule, Alfonso V was struck by an arrow and died. He was 34 years old and had ruled Leon for 29 years. Alfonso had two children, Fermudo III, born around 1015, and a daughter named Sancha. Sancha was initially married to Count Garcia of Castile, and later to Fernando, son of Sancho III of Navarre, after Garcia's assassination in 1029. Vermudo's beleaguered short reign saw his sister's father-in-law attacking and conquering much of his kingdom, including the valleys of Sea and Pisuerga in 1032. Then, Leon itself was taken in 1034. Vermudo was forced to retreat to Galicia and the Asturias. He was able to regain control of Leon following Sancho III's death in 1035 and seized the initiative by going on the offensive in a war against his brother-in-law, Fernando, Count of Castile, in order to reclaim lost territory. However, on September 4, 1037, Vermudo III was killed in the decisive Battle of Tamaron. He was 22 years old and had kind of ruled Leon for about 13 years. On his death, his kingdom fatefully passed to his sister Sancha and therefore to her husband Fernando, forming a new Castilian-Leonese monarchy. This new monarchy slash kingdom, commonly known as Leon Castile, was to become the powerhouse of the Iberian Peninsula its economic and military strength would be central in the shaping of the kingdoms of the peninsula for centuries. We will leave Iberia right here for the moment, as the collapse of the Umayyad dynasty and the rise of Leon Castile was a major turning point in the political landscape of the peninsula. This collapse will also bring a change in how I will be approaching the material moving forward. Thus far, I've been lucky enough that there was a manageable number of principal factions to discuss. The fact that Al-Andalus was ruled mostly by one dynastic power was incredibly helpful in maintaining a coherent chronological narrative. As we enter this next period, where the caliphate disintegrated into many small territories controlled by warlords of varying strength, 
I will have to cover only some of the Muslim powers as they affect or are affected by the Christian ones. But stay tuned, because things are about to get even more interesting. So until next time, thanks for listening.